Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Markus Weibel from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we'll talk to Metin City, who is assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University and the head of the Nanorobotics Lab. Metin City is very well known for his work on nanostructures, such as synthetic gecko hairs used for dry adhesion and for the use of these nanomaterials in robotics. His research interests include micro and nanorobotics, biologically inspired robots, bio-nanomanipulation, scanning probe microscopy, as well as haptic interfaces and telerobotics. The topic of this podcast episode is nanorobotics, and Metin will tell us a bit more about his fascinating research in this field and about the future of this technology. Welcome to Talking Robots, Metin. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, you're the head of the nanorobotics lab at uh, CMU. How is micro and nanorobotics different from normal robotics? Uh, so, with respect to microscale robotics, uh, micro and nanoscale robots uh, try to operate at the micro and nanoscales. And as the biggest difference, I can say, their overall size tend to get much smaller. And in that sense, they can access the really small spaces. So if you want to access inside your body, uh, you can use only miniature robots, not big-scale robots. So that's why accessing the small spaces is their biggest unique advantage. Uh, the other advantage uh, compared to this one is interacting and handling of really small-scale objects like micro-nanoscale entities, like biological cells or uh, small materials. So that's their major differences with respect to micro-scale robots. Uh, and on the other hand, because of these differences, their size it should be really small. Uh, their physics is different than big robots because they work with small-scale forces, and they have a lot of limitations on size, weight, computation because of their size. And uh, in the future, also, we can make them in large numbers where we cannot make them uh, make large robots so, uh, in so many in large numbers yet. Uh, so you mentioned a lot of different aspects here, uh, one of them being there's different physics for these small robots. Uh, how does Is there any advantage in downscaling robots? How does, for instance, battery consumption change? Uh, yeah, when you scale down, there are many interesting things happen. For, uh, for weight, for example, weight gets negligible, and the small-scale forces, what we call surface forces, become dominant. Uh, so that brings a lot of unique advantages of using different forces to do locomotion. So you can walk on water if you are really small, but if you are big, you cannot do that. Um, so in that sense, using small physics, we can create new ways of attaching to surfaces, locomoting on surfaces. And in that sense, power-wise, power density gets better when you scale down objects. So you need less power to locomote. And, and also you get faster. So in that sense, small robots will be faster and more agile than large-scale robots because of scaling down. So you talked about surface properties here, uh, and one of your main research axes are artificial gecko hairs, and they're used in robotics. Uh, what makes gecko hairs uh, interesting? Um, to make attachment materials uh, that we want to climb or attach to surfaces repeatedly, uh, gecko, geckos have developed very unique uh, and uh, advanced uh, hairs in their feet by evolution. And these uh, materials, or the hairs in their feet, can attach to almost any surface uh, as long as they are smooth or slightly rough. 
And they're very power efficient also that they attach very fastly and detach very fastly without much power consumption. So in that sense, uh, they're very agile and uh, fast climbers in nature because of these unique advantages of the gecko material. And how does this work? Um, so uh, these hairs in their feet are really tiny that we cannot see by a normal eye. Uh, they tend to branch the smaller hairs even. And because of their hairy structure, the animal presses their feet to the surface by their muscles. And then by this pressing force, these hairs deform and adapt to surface roughness. And by this very good contact, uh, they will basically stick, and then they can stay with that uh, stuck position almost permanently because it's a passive attachment. And then uh, when they want to detach, they peel their feet, uh, and then they can release their feet from the surface uh, very easily. And this kind of adhesive hairs, uh, they don't have any liquid on them, so they are mostly dry. So there's a lot of different other animals that also are able to walk on walls from the ceiling. I'm thinking about, I don't know, uh, flies or frogs or snails or ants. Um, what, what is the difference between these different methods? Um, also, insects, as you mentioned, use hairs in their feet. But if you look at their scale and density of their hairs, uh, the insects mostly have bigger scale hairs, and they don't branch out too much. So if you look at the geckos kind of lizards, uh, since they're much bigger and heavier, so by evolution, they developed much finer and even branching hair structures. So that's one biggest difference. And the other difference is also geckos and spiders also tend to have more dry hairs rather than wet hairs that most of the insects have because they secrete some oil. And then this dry adhesion makes them more robust to attach much wider range of surfaces and also they don't get dirt uh, on their surfaces because of their dryness and also their uh, specific structure. So in that sense, making much smaller hairs and dry hairs make them to stick to surfaces much uh, strongly. That's why geckos can be much bigger than an insect and can still walk in the ceil on the ceiling. So what, what are the dimensions of these hairs? Um, so the, it's like a tree structure. So it starts, of course, this tissue is very important. It's a soft tissue. And then uh, there's a micro hair branching from the tissue, uh, which is in the order of 5 microns. So if you think about our hair, it's around 100 microns. It's almost 10 or 20 times smaller than our, our hair uh, as a diameter. And then um, this micro hair branches to smaller few micron and even at the very end, hundreds of nanometer hairs. So that's why they can go from micro to nanometer uh, scale hairs. And even at the very end of these hairs, their endings look like a saucer. So in that sense, uh, they're really complicated 3D structures fabricated by self-assembly in nature. So you said these complicated 3D structures and these tiny hairs, they're very good at, uh, at making contact with even rough surfaces. But still, what makes them stick? Uh, so that was kind of a big debate, uh, like uh, centuries, and still kind of com not completely solved, but mostly solved. I can say that uh, people thought it could be vacuum suction, electrostatic attraction, or uh, capillary kind of surface tension force, or Van der Waals type of dry intermolecular forces. With a team at Berkeley uh, four years ago, we showed many evidences that uh, these uh, saucer-type endings and also these hair structures they tend to use 
dry intermolecular forces like Van der Waals forces to stick to surfaces rather than uh, surface tension or electrostatic forces or vacuum suction. Uh, so in that sense, they are very generic because Van der Waals type of forces exist for every material and even in every condition. So that's why these animals can stick inside vacuum or in air or in liquid even, which is very unique for uh, adhesive applications. And you already mentioned dust and dirt. Uh, what prevents dust and dirt clogging up these, these microstructures? Uh, that's a very interesting and important property, what we call self-cleaning. Uh, because for adhesives or attachment mechanisms, that's the biggest problem that uh, your adhesive material will uh, contaminate by time and will lose its uh, sticky behavior. In these animals, uh, because of the nanostructuring and also material properties of uh, repelling water, uh, they can uh, basically drop the dirt on the surface by time, by after a few cycles of attachment detachment, the dirt on the surface will touch and get into contact with the hairs, but when they do this repeatedly in the sense of attaching and detaching, the dirt will drop from their hairs because of their nanostructure uh, and soft cleaning property. So that's why they can climb on surfaces millions or billions of cycles with no uh, contamination and no problem. So I understand you can, uh, you can produce these microstructures artificially. How does that work? Uh, since we understood the principle of dry uh, structures and uh, the significant part is basically the structure and the material properties, um, we have been working on using polymers uh, dominantly to uh, uh, mimic these hairs. What we do basically is uh, using microfabrication technology or nanofabrication, we can make channels inside silicon at the very high spec ratios and then uh, mold these channels with polymer, liquid polymers. And after curing the polymer, we can peel them off or we can basically get rid of the template by dry etching so that we can basically generate a negative uh, pillars uh, by molding these channels. So this is the most common method. But I can say we have a variety of options because since this is a generic principle that can apply to almost any material, we also work on carbon nanotubes as uh, gecko adhesives or people also show different other polymer materials and structures. So as long as we can have the similar structure and material properties, we can really generate similar adhesive behavior. Um, you work in robotics, and uh, for a robot, it's not enough to be able to, to attach itself, uh, but it also needs to be able to detach itself again afterwards. Uh, how do you unglue these materials? Um, as you say, detachment is a critical issue when you do climbing or repeated attachment. And, um, for example, vacuum suction is a big problem because it needs a lot of power to detach. So in this adhesive hairy, hairy material, the trick is peeling rather than pulling it back. And if you look at uh, the food of real gecko, what they do is they peel their feet back by curling it back. So they are very flexible fingers so that they can peel it back by uh, basically deforming their feet backwards so that they can detach their hairs very efficiently from the surface. And in our robots, we do the same thing and trying to create this peeling uh, mechanism so that we need really minimal power to detach them from surfaces. Because in real animal, it, they can attach in 10 milliseconds and detach in 60 milliseconds. As you can see, it's very fast and also power-efficient detachment mechanism. So these robots that you that you just talked about, uh, these you also call them wall bots, spelled W A A L as the 
Van der Waals forces you mentioned earlier. Um, what can what can these robots that you currently have do? Um, so we use the same material as you mentioned, and of course there are possible there are a wide range of possibilities of robot designs using this uh, gecko adhesive material. And the most successful design so far we have uh, is what we call a three-legged uh, wheeled robot. So it's a palm-sized robot that has uh, basically two wheel-type legs, but they have three-legged wheel-type sh legs, which can rotate by basically a motor rotation. And each feet, uh, three-legged uh, robots, each feet has this adhesive material. And by rotating them, they attach by pressing, and they detach by peeling. And uh, they have the weight of in the order of 30 to 100 grams, kind of relatively light uh, robots. And uh, so far, we could show them uh, climbing to steep walls and even ceilings uh, with uh, speeds of in the order of 1 to 5 <clears throat> centimeters per second, kind of relatively uh, reasonable speeds. But, of course, the issue right now is we can climb on mostly smooth surfaces, not rough or wide range of surfaces yet. And also this robot can transit from floor to the wall and also from wall to the ceiling with no problem. And it can also steer on the surface, so it, it doesn't just go straight. So it can turn around, it can go sideways and even backward or downwards. So in that sense, we showed uh, the basic feasibility of this kind of robotic concept uh, to climb on smooth glass type of surfaces uh, currently. Um, in one of your projects, you try to improve these gecko hairs uh, even further by using liquid to change the adhesion. Uh, what gave you this idea? Uh, as I mentioned, in insects, in the, they use hairs, but also they have these oil coatings. It's <clears throat> a secretion rather than something coming from outside. So um, the <clears throat> one issue with the gecko hairs is... <clears throat> sorry. Depends on the surface. Uh, their attachment force is limited by their density and number of hairs. Uh, but these insects, because they use oil as a kind of another layer of material on top of the hairs, that enhances the attachment force. So in that sense, the one reason we uh, try to use also oil coatings uh, is to enhance the adhesive force of these materials. Uh, but the second much more important advantage is uh, they can then stick to even some tissues type of biological materials much better uh, because we want to use the same gecko adhesive for biomedical applications in which we need to attach to tissues which are wet or dry. And this kind of oil-coated uh, hairs we saw that stick better to these kind of much uh, complicated surfaces. Uh, where do you see potential applications for this adhesive technology in robotics? Um, in the sense of uh, robotic locomotion, these materials will be very important for enhancing adhesion and friction. So in that sense, if you think about any robot that can, uh, let's say, climb or crawl or do snake type of locomotion, you need to have a good friction on the uh, other skin or on their feet. So in that sense, this kind of material will be really important to get very repeatable and robust attachment mechanisms for different type of robotic locomotion. So that's the major, I think, uh, application of these materials in robotics. Uh, on a side note here, in one of your projects, you've also developed a water-running robot. Uh, how does that work? 
Um, that is a kind of a leg robot. Uh, so the real lizard called basilisk lizard is a kind of biped type of robot or animal. Um, but uh, we did some analysis. So what this animal does is um, they, at a very high speed, slap their foot to the surface of the water and create an air coyote. And before this air coyote collapses, they pull their foot back from the water so that basically there is a continuous slapping and then air cavity generation on the water surface. If you do this very fast uh, leg uh, rotation on the water surface, uh, periodically you would see that you can generate very high lift forces and even propulsion forces. And using this kind of very fast rotation of the legs, these animals and the robots that we mimicked uh, the same way can run on the water uh, with lifting of the just the leg locomotion rather than using buoyancy type of uh, different forces. So in that sense, they're very fast robots, and a uh, very important thing is they're amphibious, so they can run on land and on water the same way that uh, they can do with the leg locomotion without changing almost anything. How large are these robots, and how fast do they need to run? Uh, right now, they are in the order of um, palm size again, but a little bit bigger than palm size. Uh, because they are the first prototypes we have developed, and they can run uh, with speeds uh, right now up to uh, tens of centimeters per second, but it will go up to meter per second, because real animal can go with the speeds of meter per second, which is really amazing. And um, we are getting there, but still we are in the uh, process of optimizing the design to get that those high speeds and high lift forces for our human robots. Because of our actuator technology is not so light yet, like in the real animal, and we are still optimizing those uh, details. And can they already sustain their own weight? Uh, almost there. Uh, not completely. We can generate lift in the, uh, uh, let's say, in the order of 60 to 70% of the current robot weight. So what we found is, as we mentioned at the beginning, scaling down is an advantage. So that's why we are now building a smaller robot, which will have much better uh, lift-to-weight ratio. So that's why... We will make that robot hopefully very soon, uh, uh, moving freely with complete lift of the body weight. And where would you see uh, potential applications of this technology? Um, so uh, this type of robots, we are aiming to uh, use them as amphibious type of robots that can uh, have leg locomotion on land and water so that we can do exploration in nature. We can do search and rescue and even also entertainment uh, is uh, another application that we are thinking about. So it will be mostly some search and uh, basically running robots uh, that can access a much wider range of surfaces rather than just land, but also on water kind of liquid surfaces. So we talked a lot about downscaling and micro and nanorobotics. Uh, what's the smallest robot that you can currently achieve? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> the robots we have talked so far, they are in the order of palm, palm size or even maybe the smallest we can build uh, with conventional technology is centimeter cube robots. In the, even in EPFL, uh, Alice kind of different robots show that the, we can push down the robots in the order of centimeter cube uh, with current technology. But uh, in my team, we have recently shown that by using biological organisms as an actuator and power source, we can go down to micron-scale robots uh, slowly, slowly, let's say. And what we do is we use real bacteria, attach them to our robot body, and in liquid environment, these bacteria will be surviving for hours or even days. And uh, if you attach them carefully, 
they will propel the attached robot body with their flagellar uh, propulsion because they have these uh, screw-type uh, uh, tails that they always rotate. And by the propulsion of these tails of the bacteria, we can uh, we have shown recently that we can push our robot bodies uh, with speeds in the order of tons of microns per second. And then we don't need an actuator for propulsion or even power. So that's a kind of new trend uh, to make robots really micron scale. And, of course, we are st still at the very beginning stage. These bionic machines, do you think this is a trend that will continue in the future? Uh, I believe so. This is one of the alternative solutions to go down to really small scale. Of course, there are other means also by using external power, like uh, using magnetic fields or external energy source, you can also miniaturize robots down to millimeter or uh, micron scale. But I believe the bionic, uh, bionic type of uh, miniature robots will have the advantage of being really the smallest because we use the smallest actuators you can ever get in nature or even in engineering. And, of course, uh, then there, there will be a lot of interesting problems to solve how to integrate these biological systems to robots and control them because they will be all stochastic and they will have their own intelligence at the micron scale even. So those issues will be very exciting and give us uh, new opportunities in the near future. Uh, we're already talking about the future here. Um, where would you see the big goals in nanorobotics in the next 20 years? Um, so uh, in the sense of miniature mobile robotics, uh, as we said at the beginning also that we are trying to go down really small scale and even maybe nanometer scale robots one day. Uh, that's a big grand challenge to miniaturize uh, robots down to that small, uh, really small scale. In that sense, I think um, the trends will be, in one aspect is power uh, source issues, how to give power to these really tiny robots. And in that sense, bionic option was one option. External powering is another option. And there will be many new ones in the sense of making really small power sources uh, kind of uh, ideas will be one of the important contributions to the field. And on the other hand, there are a lot of actuators and mobility issues still to solve, to show a lot of mobility applications like locomotion in the sense of swimming, flying, and climbing, and other type of uh, mobility. And also how to manufacture these robots uh, is still a big problem because right now we just show bigger scales ones because they're easy to integrate. But when you go really small, how to make these parts, how to integrate them, assemble them. We need to still develop manufacturing technologies to do that because in the future we want to make not only one of these robots but hundreds or thousands or even millions of these robots to make uh, interesting applications. And finally, uh, since these robots will have very limited computing uh, power, how to control and communicate these devices with a simple control methodologies um, is an important challenge waiting us. And if we go, go a little bit beyond micro-robotics now and look at robotics really in general, um, which areas would you see as the most promising in the future? Uh, I believe uh, one big application uh, and impact could be in service robotics and personal robotics. Uh, as we know, robots entered the industry very well, so they, now we can see a lot of examples of them in manufacturing systems but we cannot see them in our daily lives too much yet because of technological, also psychological, and many other issues. If we can really build promising and robust and also safe robots, I believe uh, these type of 
personal and service robots will be very important. On the other hand, I believe uh, biomedical applications of robots um, are very important and will be very uh, kind of impacting our lives because having rehabilitation robots or um, small robots inside our bodies, we can have really improved uh, surgical or biomedical applications uh, to make people's life better. And finally, I think for search and rescue and for helping people in space or underwater, so assisting robots uh, will be very important for us in wide range of uh, places that we need help. So that those things will continue. And maybe finally, as a new, another important uh, application, educational and entertainment robotics <clears throat> will become uh, more and more important. You know, these uh, Legos, they, have, they enter to the schools and many places already, but I expect to uh, see that more and more advanced type of miniature and even different type of uh, robots that we can uh, make many students or kids uh, assemble them and control them for a wide range of different applications and, and education, of course. And in which field of robotics would you say uh, in about 20 years again uh, will, we, will we see the biggest impact on our daily lives? Yeah, I think as the priority, I believe healthcare uh, will be the most important one as long as we can make our robots, uh, again, working safely and uh, robustly in that time scale, because that area is really uh, going slowly in the sense of doctors have tendency of accepting new technologies slower than other areas. But definitely it will change our lives in the sense of um, improvements if we can really get those robots uh, into real uh, hospitals and uh, medical doctors' life. And uh, and the second one, I think, is the personal robotics that we want to have really robots helping us in our natural environments like offices and homes. And I believe that will be really important. And we will see much more examples in the uh, next, next 20 years. Well, thank you very much, Metin, for joining us here on Talking Robots. Okay, thank you, Marcus. This concludes our Talking Robots interview with Metin City from the Nanorobotics Lab at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today we talked about artificial gecko hairs, wallbots, and his fascinating water-running robot. As usual, you can find related links and other information for this episode on our website. I'm Marcus Weibel. Thanks for listening. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.